the idea here in First Timothy is force both to adhere to the true faith and that good teaching changes lives. It becomes evident in our, our behavior and our church unity. And you see, how you're taught affects how you live. You're like, really? Does, does that really apply to church? Well, just let me bring it back home to you. I was talking with an individual the other day, and uh, I was saying, you, you ever find out that people that were raised in a home with discipline, I said, yes, have a certain respect for authority. I says, yeah, sometimes even fear. Said, yeah, that's true. And whereas those who grew up in homes that don't learn about authority figures, that don't learn about respect, grow up a different way. I said, you're absolutely right. What's the difference? The way you're taught. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his own heart, so is he. And the idea is what you teach, what, what you're being taught, what you learn, has an effect on how you live. And so that's why the, the uh, letter of 1 Timothy, which is more appropriately called because it's Paul the Apostle, he's writing a letter to younger pastors, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they're all called pastoral epistles. The Apostle Paul was in prison at this time. If you go to the last part of the book of Acts, you'll find he was imprisoned. He was writing a letter to encourage one of his young colleagues, uh, Timothy, on how to uh, function in terms of his ministry at Ephesus. And uh, he was in prison, in, and he was in a hired uh, house in Rome where he stayed for two years. Luke suggests he was released from there, and many scholars feel that after his release from imprisonment, that Paul traveled with Timothy and Titus around the Roman Empire before going into the East again. He left Titus on the Isle of Crete to guide the emerging churches there, and he brought Timothy on to Ephesus with him, and there was already a church that had long been established already. And then the apostle then left Timothy in Ephesus while he himself traveled up to Macedonia. After Paul left Timothy, he was arrested and re-imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. In prison, he writes the second letter to Timothy. After this, as tradition tells us, Paul was beheaded on the Ostian way. Uh, his head is, he was beheaded. So these letters come at, really at the close of what I call the Apostles Minute. He's writing this letter uh, to a younger colleague. He's writing to somebody he's mentored in the faith and somebody he's invested a lot of time in. And it's like, really, it's, it's a letter from a father to a son saying, I spent time with you. I've invested my life in you to, to grow up the way that you are. Which I just want to step aside from that and just talk about the importance of what we call discipling or mentoring. And you say, what, what's that all about? Well, in, in truth, Paul mentored and discipled Timothy. And the greatest impact that will happen in your life, apart from reading the Word and praying, is to have a godly man or woman that will stand beside you, that will sit beside you, and guide you in spiritual truth and encourage you in your walk with Christ. If you go back far enough in church history, many times... There, there, were, there were, really wasn't any Bible college or seminaries. What you did is you had a man who you uh, spent time with, who mentored you, who took time with you, and that's how you were educated back then, sort of like an apprenticeship training that we call it today now. And so I would say that Timothy was an apprentice of Paul, learning what it meant to know Christian faith, know Christian doctrine, and to really grasp a hold of what Christ had grabbed a hold of Paul all about. And when I say that, it's, it's, uh, it's so important to understand the issue of mentorship and discipleship because sometimes it's a lost art in the church. We, we talk about it, but we don't do much about it.
And the idea is this, that every one of us should be looking for an individual who's just a little bit more spiritually mature than we are and say, hey, can you spend some time with me and show me the ropes so I can grow in my Christian faith and my Christian life? Now, what I often do with, with men in terms of men's ministry, I sometimes will do a thing called uh, leadership development. And what I do with leadership development is this. I talk to men. I said, you are a combination of many different people who have invested in your life. And so what I do is I get people, and I've had gals who do this as well, chart your life from the very day you were born to where you're at now. And depending how old you are, sometimes you better do it in decades. If you're a little younger, do it in increments of five years. And let's look at what's happened in your life in the first five years. What did you learn? What were the negatives? What were the positives? And I get them to chart out their life to where they're at now. And looking on the base of the negatives and positives, I said, what did you, well, what specifically hurt you in the first five years? What did you learn in the first second, in the first five years? What are the things in the, in the, and talk about that. And what happens as you look at your life, as I look at my life, what I've been able to see is that the first 10 years of my life, I was impacted, the strongest impact in my life, which has been a continuous impact, were my mother and my father who trained me in the ways of God, who read the Bible to me, who made sure I went to Sunday school, whether I liked it or not, and did all those things. But then I also recognized that when I was came to a saving knowledge of Christ at Brantley Baptist Church at age 12, that I took time to spend time. There were men in that church, and they had what they did with youth group at that time. They used to take us out to nursing homes, have us sing out of the hymn book, and visit senior citizens. Did anybody remember that stuff? Okay, you got a few hands here. The rest of you are like, what? Really? They did that? Yeah, they did that. What was the idea? Well, they, they taught us from the very get-go, your life is about ministry and helping others and speaking to other people's lives. The next important person in my life was a guy named Pastor Foley. He was our youth pastor. He says, Adrian, yeah, how are you doing? He said, not bad. Don says, let's pray. The first time, I remember the first time praying on the phone. My mother said, what are you doing? He's praying. I never heard of anybody. We do that now. But back then in the 60s, it was like praying on the phone with a pastor, really? And so he would pray with me. And then he said, are you playing guitar? I said, not so good. <laughs> he said, well, I want you to bring your guitar, and I'm going to teach you to play guitar some more. I said, sure. I, so I did that. But the most instructive thing he did was take me to a class. They encouraged me to take, along with my brother, my mother, and a few, quite a few others at Bramley Baptist Church, how to lead a soul to Christ. Treasure Path of Soul. And that placed in my heart a burden to evangelize people for Christ from that point on. Then as I got decent at it, then there were other people in my church that talked to me, and they said, you know what, you've got a real gift for evangelism. We'd like you to go to the East Coast. I said, East Coast, that sounds cool, except in Ontario. And he said, we'd like you to help a summer missionary that we support called Jack Mackay. He's running a, he's in a hometown fair, and he's running gospel films, and he, they're giving invitations, and they need people that can lead people to Christ. Adrian, you're really good at it. Would your brother and you go? I said, yeah, sure, we'll do it. So I started going to the East Coast, and Jack said, I really like, I see that God's really giving you a gift here. And Jack would come up every year. He said, hey, I want you to spend. So I began to go for my entire summers to the East Coast. But again, God placed different people in my life all along. And I could go on, I could describe from, from to a point that God used specific people in my life to develop me as to who I am today. Each one of them had the, we didn't call it mentoring because we didn't know what it was. We didn't even call it discipleship because that's what it really was. But these men would guide me and coach me 
in terms of my Christian walk as I was involved in serving Christ, and they guided me and coached me all along the way to what I am today. And God uses specific people in Timothy. And so that's why I'd say it's instructive. When you read about Paul being a one who discipled and mentored Timothy, and Timothy being an apprentice, we need more of that today. And sometimes we say to people, well, you know what, you know, it's so important for us to take time to have men that guide us, coaches, and ladies to have older ladies. We're gonna that's Book of Titus covers that. The older men teaching younger men, the older men teaching the younger men what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. And so as you read this letter of 1 Timothy, just again, encapsulize in your mind the whole idea that this is a fatherly Paul speaking to his apprentice, who is a pastor at this point's life, in terms of guiding him in his walk with Jesus Christ. We pick it up in 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through to 3. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. You see, in verse 1, the Apostle Paul establishes his, his apostolic authority. He says, uh, he says, Paul... An apostle. An apostle means one sent forth, one commissioned by Christ Jesus. And he says, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our Lord. A lot of people call themselves apostles, but let me say Paul was an apostle because he was indeed commanded by God. He, he, well, he said, why would he, if this was a personal letter, why would he write it that way? Well, he did it because he realized that this letter would be read publicly. And people say, what kind of letter is this? Oh, it's way, it's of the Apostle Paul. Everybody knew who he was. He said, by the command of God. And what he was saying is that when he came to a saving knowledge of Christ, after on his way to Damascus, after falling off his horse, and the Lord, and he cried out, Lord, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then he says, I have great things for you in store. You must suffer many things for my name, but I'm going to make you an apostle. I'm going to make you one who's going to present the gospel to the Gentiles. I've just paraphrased that. He says, I've been sent, commissioned by God, by his command to do this. And so, you see, before Timothy went to Ephesus, the church was under severe attack. He wanted to encourage Timothy, who was facing a daunting task of untangling problems in the church. Do you ever know of any church that doesn't have any problems? He said, no. No of any family that doesn't have any problems. No, they're all in heaven, okay? That's where there's no problems. So in the middle of this farewell speech, he says this. He says in Acts 20 to 29, 30, this is when he's commissioning Timothy to go to the place called Ephesus. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own, a number will arise and distort truth in order to draw disciples after him. He said, when you go to Ephesus, it's going to be it's going to be a great church. There's going to be no problems. You're just really going to enjoy it. It's going to be a fantastic ride. You're going to love it there. No, he doesn't call it. He said, you know what? There's going to be savage wolves. There's going to be people. There's going to be problems. There's going to be issues. Do you feel the call to go to Ephesus now? I don't. I don't think so. He said, there's going to be others who are going to try to split off. Going to try to draw draw disciples after themselves. 
But he wanted to let the church know also that Timothy, when he came there, came under the authority of the Apostle Paul, because Paul was recognized. There's a great need of encouragement for all who serve in ministry position. He wanted to, I want to encourage you, Timothy, because pastoring, ministering, being involved in the ministry is a challenge. Oftentimes it's a thankless job with many discouragement and long hours. This past week, I read of a megachurch pastor, Jim Howard, who committed suicide after resigning Real Life Church in Valencia, California. It's a church of 6,000 people. You can read it in ChristianHeadlines.com. The Schaefer Institute reports that 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates leave the ministry within five years. Most people do not last because it's not an easy job. Sometimes you get to, okay, hey, pastor, how's it like to work one day a week? I said, I wish. Not really. Why? Because sometimes there's overwhelming life situations and you feel unable at times to cope with the stresses and expectations of ministries. That's why I tell pastors the most important thing you can do, they say, what's that? Is make sure you have a strong relationship with Jesus Christ because he is the only one that will sustain you through this time. Without him, it's never going to happen. Right, pastor? So the whole idea is that there are, sometimes there's comparisons to, uh, well, you know, when you, when you preach, well, you're not like Chuck Swindle. <laughs> or you're not like so-and-so. So you, sometimes your leadership style is compared, your preaching ability, your conflict resolution, your counseling ability, uh, and many others. But the truth is, every one of us, whether you're a pastor or not, need encouragement every single day. Life is tough. Hebrews 10.25 says this, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Folks, we live in a day and an era, and I don't want to go into all the headlights. You've seen what's going on in the news this past week. Make you sick to your stomach. Our world is not a good place to live. But as believers in Christ Jesus, we need to encourage one another in our walk with Christ because it's going to get tougher to be a Christian and stand for what this book teaches. So Paul mentored Timothy in helping him to grow in his walk with Christ. And so Paul concludes his greeting with these three words, grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. Mercy includes that special attention and care that God extends to those who are in need. So I pray for God's mercy upon your life. Peace describes a heart at rest in harmony with God. He said, I hope you have peace with God right now in your life. And every one of these Traits come from God the Father. Paul tells Timothy what his work at Ephesus would involve. We're going to take our time to go through this letter and understand clearly what Paul had in mind for the church that Timothy was at, which was a church at Ephesus, as well as understand that the same truth applies for us as a church here at Lighthouse. The first thing the Apostle Paul told Timothy was to this these words. If you look in your in your scriptures, he said, He said, I want you to stay the course. He said, look in verse 3, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Stay the course. Stay on. Decide to stay where you're at. Why would Paul urge and challenge Timothy to stay the course, stay where you're at, stick with it? Because ministry amongst God's people is always a challenge. It's not easy, especially going to Ephesus. Ephesus was in Asia Minor. It was a governmental, judicial, and religious center in its day. 
It's highly significant that the first task the apostle sent Timothy to do in the church at Ephesus was guard the teaching of the church. What's he say? He says, command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer. In other words, teaching is the most important aspect of the ministry of the church. Teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Why? Because what's taught affects how you live, how you behave, and where you'll be spending eternity. So the gospel must be kept, be kept true and pure. As someone has said, well said, the main thing is to see that the main thing remains the main thing. And so whenever we divert from preaching the Word of God and exegeting what does the Scripture say, we go off on bunny trails all over the place and the evidence is seen in how we live. So the central task of the elders in any church is to see that the teaching that is taught in the pulpit is always in line with what does the Bible teach. Paul summarizes this in 1 Timothy 1.11. He calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Keep the gospel pure. I said, why is that? Because folks, today we are being inundated with all kinds of teaching. You can listen everywhere you want, whether it's on YouTube, on podcasts, on whatever you want. You can listen to it and get every kind of brand of teaching you can, you can have anywhere you want in the world. But is it all true? No, it's not. And what I question sometimes is the issue of discernment in the body of Christ today. Do we understand what is truth and what is not truth? And that all hinges on one thing. How well do you know the Word? Because the Word is true. When it comes to church, there's only one body of teaching. That's the Word of God. I quote Stephen Cole when he says this. He says, the danger we face today that we as evangelicals have set aside truth as the center and replace it with personal experience. Instead of biblical conviction, we elevate tolerance. We're being swept downstream with our culture so that someone states evangelicalism has simply become one more expression of the self-movement. A religion that is based on mere feeling is the vaguest, most unreliable, most unstable of all things. A strong, stable religious life can be built on no other ground than that of intelligent conviction. Unless truth is objective, it cannot be declared to others, cannot be taught to others, cannot be required of others. And so what I mean, you say, because sometimes people say, well, I don't think it says this. I don't feel. Every time I hear the word, I don't feel, I want to smack somebody. Because when it comes to the word of God, it's not about how you feel. But what does the object of God's Word teach? Because if I base my life on feelings, it's not good. Lance talked about that. Most churches today ask new members to sign a doctrinal statement attesting to what they hold as to what I believe. What do I hold to? What is the truth? The sad fact I can tell you as your pastor, that most people cannot articulate what they believe or defend it for that matter. You can't. Why? Because it's not that important to you. So Timothy's challenge was to tell the men, stop teaching false concepts that are wrong in the church. Uh, what was going on then? Well, take a look at your Bibles in 1 Timothy 1, 
says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. The phrase endless genealogies refers to histories and prophetic speculations from guesswork and self-promotion that was happening in the church. They've gone away from what does the Bible say to what I think it says. So rather than equipping the church, they were causing disruption to promote what they thought was true. And whenever we take God's word and try to use it to divide the church because of speculation, rather than what the Bible teach, it's wrong. From the foundation of the church in Acts, there's been many heresies, rumors, and defections in the body of Christ. And what happens? It's all the time. It happens every time, folks, when people get away from what does the Bible teach. So, see, if the false doctrines do not concern areas of conscience in which a church, a Christian, is free to decide upon and uh, your own personal beliefs, but it arises when it happens when false doctrine undermines the basics of faith and belief. And what happens is that. We sometimes will look at God's Word and we say, well, God's Word says this, this, and this, but I think it really means this. Then you're stepping from what I call exegesis to eisegesis. I think, I, I really, have you studied it? Have you read the Scripture? Have you compared? What's really intriguing is that so many people complain to be authorities on what the God's Word teaches, but then the, the acid test is, if you really believe what God's Word teaches, how... Are you living your life? The acid test is if I believe this, that I'm living out my life every single day. And my, by the way, friends, that's the hardest thing to do. So when truth is taught in church, Satan will seek to undermine and take away from what God says. And you say, well, well, how did that happen? Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, remember, God took Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden. And as they came into the garden, they were allowed to do like everything they wanted, everything. But there was one thing they couldn't do, eat of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They couldn't do that. And so what does Satan challenge? He challenges their thinking on the basis of one thing. Did God really say you couldn't eat that fruit. Satan cast doubt. It starts with a doubt. Does God really mean what he says? And that's what happens when we go to the scriptures and we start to look at the word of God and we say, well, I don't really think God meant that. Really? But be careful because you can find yourself there. And not only in Genesis 3 do we see that, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, it said the Spirit of God led Christ into the wilderness. And then what happens in the wilderness with Christ? He's tested and tried by Satan, not on one occasion, but three different occasions. And each time, Christ's response to Satan was, you know, you know it, he would respond again, what does Scripture say? God says. 
because he knew the word. So if Christians are grounded in truth, then false teaching can be stopped in its tracks. But what happens is, is when I look at Scripture and I think it means something when it really doesn't mean that. Well, how do I check it out? You say, well, sometimes you go to Bible company. But the best thing you can do is get on your knees and say, God, show me, reveal through me, because the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. You ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, show me from your Word what this means and reveal it to me. And God will do that. He'll show you. And you compare Scripture with Scripture. The thing is, as I said earlier, there's a proliferation of Bible teachers on the radio, TV, and Internet who do not hold to the inspired, inerrant Word of God. They pretend to believe it by quoting it. They sound even very authoritative when they preach. As we're scanning the TV this morning, actually listening to Charles Stanley, I, I looked across, and sure enough, I saw a couple guys, and I thought, there's that guy with that green hanky. He's still on there. That if you give a thousand, so a seed of faith of a thousand dollars, that God will give you everything you want. And people are being sucked in life, red, life, all, all throughout life. They're being sucked in into that the whole situation and, and doing that. And I'm thinking, God's word doesn't teach that. But they sound authoritative. The music sounds very Christian. Actually, it is. And people get suckered in and buy it. And so in general, the weakness of churches today is what we call biblical illiteracy. People don't know the word. And when that really comes to the test is when you're going through a trial and you're going through a challenge or you see what's happening and you don't know how to stand up for what you believe because you haven't studied the word. So he was to oppose the wrong concepts that were being taught in the church at Ephesus, to expose faulty sources, to point out the myths that people were involved with. And he's saying, Timothy, I want you to tell these men to stop what they're doing. You need to challenge them. You need to stand up. And Timothy says, this is fantastic. I just love being a pastor and confronting everybody what's wrong in their lives. But the thing is, as Christians, we're also called on to stand for what's true and is right and to be able to tell some people what you're doing is wrong. It doesn't hold up to what the Scripture teaches. But the trouble is, most times we don't open our mouths. We keep quiet because we want them to like us. We are more concerned with the acceptance of man than we are with the acceptance of God. And that's why we don't speak truth. And that's why we don't live truth. It's essential that there always be unity in what's being taught in the church. There are differences of style that are quite permissible. There are different gifts that are expected to vary among teachers. There are different choices of subjects in the revelation of God. The heart of truth is that the scriptures are the most powerful weapon that a church has to correct error and to deliver people from bondage to freedom. That's God. The teaching of the truth, not experienced, therefore, must be central to the ministry of this church. You had an experience? Great. Back it by this. Back it by this. When I meet friends, they talk about a certain experience. So that's interesting. I said, uh, how do you back that with the Word of God? I said, do you back everything? I said, this is, this is it, guys. This, this is the measuring test. 
does it hold up to what Scripture teaches? Because if it doesn't, you're on the wrong. I don't care how great experience it was. This is the key. And somebody says, isn't that a tough test? It's the only test. But that the, his goal of this command that he gave to Timothy was to be of love. Love for God and love for others. Paul's desire for the church was a church that embraced correct doctrine and lived out those principles in community. The idea is that when I hold to correct biblical teaching, it's fleshed out in my life and it shows in the life of the church. The question that remains to be asked is this, what effect was this teaching that these men were teaching with these endless genealogies, what kind of effect was it having on the church? It said, People, as a result, had wandered away from the truth. That, that's the evidence. Matthew 7, verse 20 says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Teaching shows itself in what kind of fruit is there in their life. What, what, what can you see? Because how a person's taught will be evidence in how they live, and what comes out of their mouths, and what happens. So what does this teaching lead people to do? The gospel says this, in Romans 6.11, if therefore anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. These are the characteristics of the Christ-like life. Count yourselves dead to sin, he says in Romans 6.11, but alive unto God. The teachers of Ephesus were attacking this. They didn't know they were. They didn't think they were. But they were because they were denying that the old life had really ended because they wanted to add on the old stuff from the past life. The references to myths and genealogies were suddenly suggesting there's something of value from my past life that can be carried over into the new life. Wrong. The Apostle Paul's testimony talked about his pedigree. And all the things that happened in his life, and he said, I count them but rubbish that I may know Christ. Your family connections, your ties with the past, the honor, position, and prestige which your ancestors held are not rendered valueless, but yet if we attempt to hang on to the past apart from Christ, it's wrong. The meaning of these myths, they were exalting, were exalting the mind of men, the wisdom of men, the ability of men to understand or rationalize rather than what saith the Scripture. Paul says, Our motive is a desire for position, reputation, not to see that truth is taught and that lives are changed. No, I'm holding this because this is what I hold to, and I don't care what the rest of the church thinks. And oftentimes the church of God is divided by men and by women who take a viewpoint on truth, take it to an extreme, and then lead a bunch of people down the same path. And I've seen it happen time and time again. It's sad. The desire to, teach, to be teachers of the law, what's the Apostle Paul say? He says, the remarkable thing is they don't understand what they're saying or the sources from which they take their knowledge. They think they're on the right track, but they're not submitting to the authority and the teaching of God's word and the elders of the church. He said, although they appear to be impressive teachers, they're out with any understanding of reality. That's why their subtle intrusions of doctrinal aberrations must be caught at its very source. That's why Paul was telling Timothy, you've got to stop this. It can't be happening in the church. 
I conclude by saying this. As a pastor here, my major task is to preach God's truth every single day, even when it reproves, rebukes, exhorts. Your major task as a congregation is to hear the word of God, even when it's difficult, with a view to saying, what must I do to obey the word of God? You know, I'd love you to be Bereans. Because the book of Acts says the Berean church, when the apostle Paul would preach, they would look it up in the scriptures to see if it was so. They kept tracking. He preached this. Let's check it out. What's the Bible say? And so when people teach and talk about what they think the Bible says, you should study it for yourselves. Does it? Say, does the Word of God say this? Does it really say this? The major dangers that I would desire sometimes as a pastor to be liked, I will soften God's truth. Your major da- dangers that I would desire to feel good, you go find somebody who tells you what you like to hear rather than what you need to hear. We're to guard our hearts and give ourselves fully to the study of God's word. And the idea is there, again, the idea is this. Give ourselves fully to the truth. Guard the gospel. And seek by God's grace through the infilling of his Holy Spirit to live our lives in such a way as that the Holy Spirit's life and the teachings of God's word are manifest in my life so that people can see that I walk the walk and talk the talk. And that's a hard challenge, my friend. Because somebody said, well, I thought Christianity was a whole lot easier. I'm sorry. You sold the wrong bill of goods. Christianity is tough. It's discipline. It's hard sledding. But again, what's intriguing about this is that Jesus Christ himself has set the pattern for us. He set the example. He says, follow me. And the thing is, you're either going to follow Christ in his teaching or going to follow somebody else. So it means every single day when I wake up, I choose to follow what God's word says every single day of my life. And when I veer from what this book teaches, it'll show up in my life and it'll show up down the road. If you say, well, it's not showing up now. Well, it will eventually show up because your fruit, what's evidence in your life will evidence what you believe to be taught through this word of God. Again, somebody says, well, in other words, Pastor, I've got a choice. Yep. You have a choice every day. Who are you going to follow? Whose teaching are you going to follow? And the challenging thing is that we need to always remember, so don't follow what I think to be true, but I need to follow what I believe God's word to say every single day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts. Help us indeed guard the gospel. Help us to live a life, Lord, that's fleshed out in Scripture. Lord, we all need a little help. But Lord, help us to, uh, that your Holy Spirit would guide us into your truth. Help us every day as we open the Word of God, Lord, to say, Lord, speak to me, for your servant is listening. That we might take the Word of God and apply it to our lives every single day. And Lord, help us in this day of gray, that we might be black and white in what we teach and what we say, that Christ would be exalted and glorified through our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.